Lights, camera, action. Thank you for giving us some of your time today. Oh, well, you're more than welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, basically, we've been uh, going through all of our favourite action films uh, during the last lockdown that we've got over here because we usually talk about sports and all of that's been shut down. So actually, last week, we uh, we went over Speed, Speed being one of our favourites and uh, obviously few better people to speak to than uh, so- someone that was in front of the camera. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's great. I'm happy to. Thank you. I mean, to, to start off with, we wondered, um, how was the film kind of pitched to you? Because we read about all the different changes there was beforehand, but like when you were going into the audition or when it was kind of put in front of you, what was the premise of the film at that stage and what did you think you were getting into? Uh, well, we all knew all along it was an action film. Um, the, the premise was the same, you know, uh, the, the ticking bomb, um, you know, the, the whole thing about can't get off the bus. Um, for me, it was just, uh, yes, yet another one in the list of auditions, you know, when you're an actor and you have a good agent, they just keep sending you out. It's the lottery, really, and unless you become really big and established, um, and then people just offer you projects, which I'm kind of happy to say has been happening to me lately. Um, I guess there's some virtue in, in becoming older and a veteran, you know. Um, but at the time, like, yeah, we're talking 30 years ago. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, because Speed was shot in like 92 somewhere i think it came out in 94 so maybe it was more like 93 yeah Yeah, at the time for me it was just another big studio audition um of course you have the material before so i was kind of prepared when i went in there uh you know it was uh, the audition went well um the um, director mentioned that he had seen me in another film which is actually my my brand, I guess, uh, called Blood In, Blood Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that uh, there were enough elements of the character that I played in that that he wanted to bring them over to speed. Uh, however, there was a big change. And I was very excited when I got the news that first I had been cast, uh, as we all were. Uh, and then we convened and, and started uh, the rehearsals, which mostly consisted, as in film often, of just reading and reading and talking about the material. So we started that process at Fox. Um, we got about a week in and then the producer said, okay, everybody, we're gonna take a break for a couple of days uh, and then we'll come back and, and uh, you know pick it up again. So we did and then when we reconvened, um, they very excitedly said, okay, we've got some rewrites and it's going to be great. And they started handing out the, the new uh, scripts. And then we all dug in and started reading through the script again, only to discover that there had been such major changes that pretty much all of our characters were gone. <laughs> <laughs> no and at the end of the reading, 
all of the studio people are going, isn't that great? Isn't that great? And all of us <laughs> actors are going, um, like, yeah, okay, see you tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> because everybody walked out of there a little shell shocked because the uh, rewrite had completely um, changed. I mean, the story was the same. The premise <laughs> remained the same. Okay, we're all trapped on this bus and we have to maintain a certain speed or we're all going to blow up, et cetera, et cetera. The difference, I would say, the main difference is that in the original script, which I thought was just as exciting. I mean, I remember when I first read it, it was a page turner. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I rarely do that with, uh, with material. And basically, in the first, in the original script that we all auditioned for and we were all cast. Uh, off of and all of the deals were made based on that. The original script, I would say the biggest difference is that it was much more of an ensemble piece. Um, meaning that all of the principal passengers on the bus were really much more fleshed out characters uh, with backstories and all sorts of things. Um, in my case, one of the things I was very excited about uh, in signing on uh, is the fact that my career has mostly consisted until recently of playing bad guys mm -hmm. and playing stereotypes. And, um, and in fact, that other film that I came off of was all about Latino gangs and prison and East LA and you know a lot of that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, which to me has always been ironic because uh, early, early on, my training was as a classical actor <laughs> before Hollywood. And then when I got into the actual business, then I, I was kind of, you know, put off because everything that I kept getting called in for and everything and all of the scripts I got were bad, big guys. And, you yeah. know, I kind of came up in the era when the, the, the villain du jour were, were the Colombians, you know, so the, specifically the Colombian cocaine drug lords and stuff. So I played a lot of that crap. You know, if you give me drugs, I will kill you. So, yeah. So when, when Speed came along, I was thrilled personally because I've also got a history of, of kind of being an activist for for the Latino cause, for the Latino image, et cetera, et cetera, because it does get that, like, wait a minute, you know, we got doctors and engineers and stuff like that. Why are all the Latinos in film uh, bad guys and drug dealers and, and, and prostitutes and whatever? So I've been sort of on the, uh, in the struggle for a better representation. So when I was cast in Speed, uh, the original character, I was very excited because A, he was a hero. B, he was a normal working guy with a wife, mm -hmm. you know, had a wife. And it was just a very positive role. And um, I even told the director that. Um, and then with the rewrite, and, and the, the wife, there was a, a character of a wife. There were scenes with me and the wife and, and whatever. And in the rewrite, all of that vanished, including yeah. for all of us, most of our dialogue. <laughs> yeah. so, after the shock wore off and we kind of convened among ourselves, it's like, well, what, what happened? Now we're experts, you know, pretty much. 
you know, because everybody had been cut down to the bone, um, except for a lot of yelling and screaming. Um, we used to kid that, that our, our main acting challenge during the shooting of that was to go, ah, 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 <laughs> Oh, and then, oh, it's time again. Oh, oh, oh. And then, oh, 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 that's what we did, you know, for two months. Um, I guess, though, as, as there, it's been trimmed down there, I guess it's testament to you in that sense that you make the character this lovable guy that you're rooting for, that's a real kind of cornerstone to like Keanu Reeves' success in the movie in that sense, like picking him back up from the hole, things like that, the wisecracks you have with him. That's what makes you the lovable character in there. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things happened when we were all in shell shock. Because um, really, we like didn't really know how to react to that. Mm. Um, for me personally, I, I really was upset. And, and so I asked uh, the director if I could have a meeting with him to talk about it. And I told him what I'm telling you. I said, you know, I was looking forward to playing like this hero guy, positive role model and everything. Mm. And now it's all gone. Um, and in fact, uh, I had like seven lines left and one of them, it was back like, hey, motherfucker. And I'm like, so I told him that and, and he said, well, I'm upset as well because it's my movie and the studio, whatever. And he said, but I'll tell you what, I'll make you a promise. There will be tons of footage and I will do my best in the editing room to, to see what I can do with these characters. And, and he was true to his word. And the reason he could say that was because the film was really shot in motion, which is a tremendous challenge uh, if you're a cinematographer. Mm -hmm. um, so now it can be revealed. One of the ways that it, they got around that was because every time you move the bus to take, um, to do a, a scene, or, or, you know, not only was the bus in motion, but they were 500 cars also in motion with the extras all tuned to a radio frequency and stop and go and do this and do that. And camera trucks and stunt guys in, 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 in surrounding vehicles. So every time you and we were shooting a, on a freeway that was brand new and had not been opened yet. So thank God. And so films were using that particular freeway. Um, so we had long stretches um, of, of freeway, uh, which was dressed up to look like the 10 freeway, the Santa Monica freeway, you know, changing signs and stuff. But every time you did a take, it was about like going two miles down the road or whatever it took to film the scene and then stop. And <laughs> so if they want to do like, oh, let's do another take, you had to bring all of that stuff back to number one you know not just the bus and the things and the camera but 500 extras and cars so one of the ways around that was that uh, the director and the cinematographer worked out a system of, of shooting multiple cameras simultaneously mm -hmm. so there were on every take there were at least three cameras rolling and sometimes more and what that allowed them to do was to do medium shots, close-ups, long shots in the same take, you know, because usually, you know, you do a master and then you come in and, you know, you know that. Um, so the point being that because there were so many cameras and so much film being shot, film, that 
it was smart of the performers to just keep acting, no matter what was going on, even if it was Okeanu and Sandy are having a conversation, but somewhere, some camera is on me, you know. And so indeed, when it came time to edit, there was so much coverage that he was able in editing to put in pieces of improvisation, you know, whatever, or just cut away to somebody at a given moment. So I will say that he did do his best to put a lot of the feel of the original um, characters uh, back in again. Um, indeed, when I saw it, you know, I, I you can't help but think like, oh, I could have had that scene. I could have, but but you know, on the whole, um, I think that you know it, it came off well. It was good. Yeah, was absolutely. Good. I will mention one film which is a really old film, maybe from the 40s or so, uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I'm sure you've heard of Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. You know, Psycho, The Birds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, early in his career, he had a film called Lifeboat, which was set in World War II. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it. Um, but the basic premise of Lifeboat is that there's this uh, ship crossing the Atlantic, you know, during World War II. And the biggest threat then was the German subs and so forth. Mm -hmm. So this um, ship gets blown out of the water by a German U-boat. And it's sinking and everything like that. And in the process, a group of passengers all sort of converge on a particular lifeboat that's there in the water. And they all manage to climb on top of the, life, uh, of the, of the lifeboat. And, um, and then one person is struggling in the water. And they pull him up. And it's a German whom they eventually find out was the captain of the U-boat. So the point is, is that most of the film takes place on this lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. And these people are trying to figure out, hey, how are they going to survive? How are they going to make it? Uh, whatever. And then when they discover that they have the captain of the U-boat, but then it becomes this other dilemma about what do we do with him? Because yeah. some obviously are like, no, throw him overboard and everything. My point is, is that it becomes a movie about survival, you know, under dire circumstances where everybody is trapped together with no escape. And what happens? And when I originally read the script for Speed, that's what came to mind. I said, whoa, this is Lifeboat, you know? And if you ever see Lifeboat, it's, it's a really good movie and it's gripping and it's whatever, but, but it's a group of people trying to figure out how to get out of this situation. And the original script was a group of people trying to puzzle out how we're going to get through this. And then that went away and, and as we call it, it became, you know, Buffy and, and, and Duffy saved the world and everybody else screams. When you read the script for the first time and you see the scene in there with the bus jumping over this 50 foot drop. What, what was your reaction the first time you saw that? Because that's a you bold way to go about it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was just part of the excitement. You know, yeah. I'm, it was, uh, I, like I said before, when I first read the script, I was thrilled. I mean, it was uh -huh. quite exciting. I, I, I can't say that it was a page turn. You know, you yeah. were like, oh, then what happened? And then what happened? Oh my God, they jumped the freeway. Oh my God. And then what happened? <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, 
By the way, the, people ask about the, the, the freeway leap. Yeah. And now it can be revealed. Well, several things. First of all, there were 10 buses <laughs> who played the bus. You know, they got 10 buses and they rigged them uh, differently because of the, of the logistical problems. Again, if you're going to shoot really in motion, well, how do you how, how do you like that? What do you yeah. do? Because there's a lot of interiors and so forth. So where's the light going to come from? You know. So they had one bus rigged specifically to shoot interiors, and that bus is the strangest looking thing. It looked like a giant cricket or something. Because what they did was that they put all of the lighting equipment on the roof of the bus. All of the lights and everything were up there. And then they bounce the light into the bus with big reflector panels and everything. So on the top of the bus, there was this entire lighting rig, you know, and then all of these uh, uh, reflector things on, on grids and things like that to bounce light into the bus. So that's one bus. Then they had a bus for the famous leap of the subway. They dedicated one bus to that. You know, and 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 um, they rigged a, a roll bar cage in it. So when that bus left the freeway, there was only one person in it, the stunt driver, and he was in a cage that they put into the into the steering compartment, completely surrounded. He had a, what looked like a pilot's chair in there, and he was completely strapped in, wearing a helmet. And then they had dummies of all of the rest of us in the windows and things, and so that was. That bus was dedicated just for the jump, which was a good thing because it only made it once and then it got trashed. Um, and like I said, there were 10 buses and they had buses, they had a bus to shoot exteriors because you know, when the bus goes by and you see everybody screaming, well, that was a different bus, you know, without all the stuff on the roof. Also with the driver inside because what they, Sandy was not driving the bus, a stunt guy was. And what they did is that they they rigged the hydraulics differently. So in that crazy looking cricket looking bus that I described uh, to shoot interiors, well, he couldn't be in the bus. So they rigged the entire steering mechanism and everything and, and put it on the roof of the bus. So the stunt driver was sitting on top of the bus, you know, and he was driving. So Meanwhile, in, in, in the bus, we were all acting and driving and stuff like that. But it really was that guy. Then when we switched to the exterior bus, they had rigged the steering controls uh, inside the bus uh, behind the, you know how buses, they have bus windows, and then there's like a solid piece and the bus windows. Well, they put the guy in the seat right next to that solid thing, which, which placed him about five rows into the bus. So he was driving the bus from about the fifth seat back there. And I do stunt driving too, because you know, the bus swerves and crashes yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And so the poor guy, these drivers were so good. We had a group called the Precision Driving Team on the film. And this is a group of stunt drivers who actually go from film to film to film. Um, later, they all worked on Twister. Um, they had just come off of Terminator 2 and whatever. And these people were good, you know. And it was fascinating to 
watch them set up shots and rehearse uh, in parking lots, just walking around and things until it came time to do it. And in shooting the, the film, the, the, the vehicles surrounding the bus during all of this going on and stuff, there were about 10, 10 vehicles running alongside the bus. Those were the precision driving team. You know, everybody else was extras, but the bus was always surrounded by stunt drivers. You know, and, and they were they were absolutely and um, it was hair raising the things that they would do. Yeah. Um, some of the reactions that you see, it, in a way, after a while, it dawned on us that um, we didn't have that. You know, there was no great yeah. This all just normal comes naturally. <laughs> We just had to show up. I tell you, of all the films I've ever worked on, I've never, ever been in such a stunt heavy film. You know, I mean, usually, you know, on a film, you know, you're doing the stuff and then like, oh, on, on Thursday, we're going to do a stunt, you know, or whatever. And yeah. This thing was every day. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, like, some of those reactions must have been completely natural to being thrown okay. about in this bus. Must be um, pretty good to act in. Yes, because we, there we were in this tin can getting hurled around. And yeah. like, wow, you know, or just watching. One that always uh, I've always remembered is there's the sequence where uh, Keanu gets in this little dolly. Yeah. And he gets, you know, he goes under the bus. Well, um, a, that was very tricky to do. It was actually quite dangerous because yeah. they rigged that bus for the protection of those involved is that they, they installed like a steel panel halfway down the bus um, on, on the bottom. Yeah. And that was to prevent the dolly from going beyond you know, the point and maybe getting tangled up in the rear wheels. But that also meant that the dolly had to be controlled precisely and it, it could not be allowed to reach the panel. Yeah. Because if that happened, then the bus would start pushing the dolly. And if that happened, then the cable would go slack. Some serious jeopardy in this. Yeah. And so then the dolly would be swerving and, and anything could happen. So talk about precision driving, yeah. you know, because there were, again, shot in motion. There was a tow truck in front of us uh, with the dolly on a cable. And then the stunt guy, because you wouldn't do that with Keanu, <laughs> stunt guy uh, on the dolly, and then all of us on the bus in the windshield, you know, and like watching this go on. And we all knew the stakes, you know, so we were looking at the cable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And that was an example because there was no acting involved. No, there was no. just like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing no shit. Oh my God, he's going to die. And you had the plane explosion as well. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. The plane, it's, it's remarkable, you know. You do enough of these films and you start to understand the million dollar budgets. And yeah. You know. For that plane, yeah, that's what they did. They blew up a yeah. plane. You know, that was, uh, yeah, before the preponderance of CGI. Yeah. Oh, oh, which I, I forgot to mention, 
the freeway leap, there was some CGI involved there because there was no hole in the freeway. However, that didn't make the bus leap any less terrible. No, I can because imagine. That's done. I remember they set up a huge ramp, you know, um, in the middle of the freeway, and they put the, the fella in, in that uh, special bus. And that day, everybody converged to watch this event happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were all standing there and crossing our fingers. And then the bus went about a mile away because those are those big clunky buses, you know, yeah. and uh, so he could get a running start. And then when it was time, he, he came from about a mile away, flooring that thing to get it up to yeah. a decent speed. Came roaring down the freeway, went up the ramp, you know, and then they had not planned for this. The bus kind of, everybody was expecting the bus to fly in an arc and, and whatever, like leaping the thing. Instead, the bus went up in the air and went like this, you know. <laughs> flew this way, which, you know, if you see the movie, it's like the bus is pretty much <laughs> yeah. almost, you know, standing on, on, on its ass. Um, and then later on, they figured out, oh, we should have put ailerons on it, you know, and then erase those later. Because that's how come when jet airplanes take off, they don't go like that yeah. because they've got the ailerons in the back, you know, to control that. Well, who knew? And uh, so <laughs> the bus went up like that. It, Blue like that, and then when it landed, it landed on its ass and completely destroyed the engine. So, one take. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we always say that when films have these huge budgets, and yeah. we can never see where, how have they spent that? In this film, you can definitely see where the money's been spent. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can't. You know, one of the very, very first films I ever did um, was something called Crocodile Dundee 2. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, there we were all being Colombian cocaine guys. Yeah. Um, but when I worked on that film, because that was shot in Australia, and, and, and way out in the bush, really like way out there. And some of the locations were on Aboriginal lands, you know, the film was there by special permission and so forth. Mm -hmm. But we were so deep in the bush that there were no roads. I mean, there was like, we were in the bush. And so, and the locations were all out there in these exotic places out by the big rock or whatever. And so what did the film do? They flew in earth movers, tractors, whatever, and they built roads, you know, so we could get to the camp and we could get to all of these locations and things like that. Now you don't see that in the film, but no. being, I remember going, oh my God, that's half the budget. <laughs> you know, the summit, oh yeah, because what they did was, not only did they have to build all these roads and all this access, but we all have to be someplace uh, at night to sleep or whatever, uh, have a base camp. So what they did is that where we were, apparently there used to be mines and stuff. So they located an old mining camp, little cabins that were you know up and stuff like that. And so they went in there and completely renovated all of the cabins.
you know, I built a huge, um, you know, out, outdoor building for the kitchen, for the caterers and the dining and so forth and so on. So basically, not only did they build roads and all that kind of stuff, they went in there and renovated an entire little village. And so, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Millions of dollars. I saw a review from Speed from 94, and it said, uh, Speed knows and embraces its own silliness without sacrificing the stakes. So I thought it was a perfect way to explain it, because to be able to kind of maintain the audience's attention and do these massive stunts that kind of do defy belief in some senses. Mm-hmm. It's got that kind of that perfect blend. And I guess it's a testament to the actors on screen and just the way the script is put together, that it's able to do these big stunts, but also not put people off and think that it's, it's got to the ridiculous stage. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, one of the things that you learn early on as, um, as, a, as an actor is that you can't sacrifice your reality. You know, it's got to be real, you know. And so in playing a character, no matter how silly uh, or absurd the premise is, you can't carry that over into your creation. You know, like, I'm now playing absurd and silly because then it doesn't work. You know, um, it's real. It's got to be real. Even comedy, you know, because people make a mistake of assuming that comedy has to do with bugging and crap balls and things like that. I, I had a teacher a long time ago in college in, in a class called Dramatic Theory. And he used to say, you know, the only difference between comedy and tragedy is the perspective that you give the audience. Uh, basically, he summed it up by saying, if you're doing a heroic piece, you know, like a tragedy or something, King Lear or whatever, Hamlet, the audience is here. The audience is below the characters looking up at them because it kind of inspires awe. It's like, oh my God, you know, it's it's Kevin Costner. If you're doing comedy and messing the writing, you know, you elevate the audience, you reverse it. So the audience is looking down at the characters. You know, it's like, oh, look at him, and oh, he's a ridiculous guy. But the actor plays it the same way. You know, it's really not up to, no, of course, if you have humorous material and stuff like that, yeah, you have to, you know, kind of do it. Um, But in terms of your reality and your personal thing and what you're playing, it's just as real. You know, what changes is the situation around you you know, and the perspective with which you're looking at it. But the actual performance, to your point about embracing the silliness, you know, yeah. well, you know what? Yes, uh, but a, a lot of that is on, on, on the director and on the writer and so forth. You know, it's got to be on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the actors try to figure out the way, how am I going to do this? Without ever really losing that sense of this is a real person. Yeah, that applies as well when you're playing bad guys. And and in spite of everything I said earlier, if a bad guy is written really well, uh, it can be a tremendous amount of fun to play. You know, challenging and everything. Hey, Iago and Othello, you know, quintessential bad guy. But what a terrific role. But that's also because it has dimension. You know, it's not just a flat thing. You know, then he comes in and he hits them and, and he goes away. So what? You know, so, but, but it gets 
back to the same thing. It's like, yeah, if you give me good substance, you know, and a, a dimensional character and everything, at that point, it doesn't matter if it's a good guy or a bad guy. Mm. You said about humour and uh, your character complimenting Jack on his uh, hairy cojones is one of the uh, highlights for most people in the film. <laughs> is that something that gets quoted back to you, quoted back to you a lot when uh, you talk about the film? I'll tell you where that came from. <laughs> um, because once we realised that the multiple camera thing going on and do your best because it might end up in the film and so forth, when we did that, now that wasn't the script, but the original line was something like, hey man, you're, you're really crazy or something. And then on the day when we were shooting it, you know, I made that up. Oh, I'm out every day. Oh man, you got some really hairy ass cojones or whatever. The hell. <laughs> and everybody in Keanu went, oh, you know, and stuff. And then when the take was over, director comes up to me and he goes, well, that was very good. Dutch or something. Pardon my bad yeah. accent. <laughs> that was very good, Carlos, but now we're going to go back and do it again. And this time, please read a line from the script. He said, sure, sure enough. So all of that stuff got put back and did it again. And I pulled piano out and I delivered the line from the script. And I didn't be crazy or whatever it was. Then months go by, the film comes out, I see the film, the Harry Cohen's line. That's great. With, uh, with all the, sorry, so with all the effort that goes in from taking the bus from point A to point B, then back to point A, was there a lot of freedom to, to try things on set or was it a case of you knew they'd reduced the character already, there's already cameras on you, so I'm going to try it and then they're gonna, they'll have to work around me? Or was there a freedom for you to, to try different things? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, let them work around me is not a formula for getting hired. <laughs> no, that is that is true. But I mean, when you when you're on a bus and they've moved it, was there an was there an obstinance or a stubbornness from yourself or any of anyone else in the film where, well, this should this should have been so much more for me, and it's not there now. Can I take it? Can I take a shot? Um. Not really. I mean, getting back to that, there was a tremendous amount of upset, you know, when, when the revelation was initially made. And then everybody had to go and make their peace with it. I mean, there really was a moment of people going like, do I want to stay or what am I going to do? Whatever. This is not what I signed on for. Um, but by the time we did convene and actually start shooting, everybody had, you know, done whatever they needed to do. So yeah. nobody left. We did have the original folks. Uh, and another character was added, um, the kid who shot the driver, because I wasn't there in the original. In the original, the driver had a heart attack. Yeah. You know, in the middle of all the excitement and everything, and oh, then suddenly, and now the driver's peeled over. And that's when Annie jumps in and starts driving. Um, so part of the rewrite was that they took out the heart attack and then brought in a new character, the, the, the Latino kid yeah. from the hood. Some more stereotypes in there, if, if there wasn't yeah, to, to shoot the bus driver and stuff. So 
But my point, my real point is that um, I'm kind of answering a couple of questions at the same time. Um, once everybody committed to the project, um, they really did. Actors are wonderful people because it it did become an ensemble piece. You know, where everybody it was organic, and people would we all got to know each other. We had no choice because another different thing about shooting this movie is that you couldn't just disappear to your trailer you know yeah. which is what happens in a lot of films you know it's like okay and they do and they shoot shoot and then okay the guy we're going to move to the next scene but the camera has to move is that it's like okay so people have like a half hour or something or whatever um and they tend to disappear you know the famous like i'll be in my trailer <laughs> but on this film we were all in this bus and as i said the bus shoots off down the freeway and sometimes the shot would end you know two miles away from base camp and then the powers that be would converge to discuss and to do this and to plan and leave us all on the bus and so we're two miles away from base camp on this bus uh where are we gonna go So people got to know each other, to talk, whatever, to, to tell jokes. Sandy was spectacular because in the beginning, you got all these strangers all packed in a bus, you know, with two stars. Uh, at the time, the biggest one being Keanu, because Sandy was not yet really uh, that well known. Yeah. Um, and, and so we had to evolve this kind of chemistry on the bus. All these people are going to be trapped in this bus for like two months. And, um, and, and in, it was interesting to watch it evolve because Keanu, I love him, I love him. But by nature, he's kind of, a, you know, withdrawn and, you know, kind of a shy person and everything. Suddenly he's trapped in this bus with all these raucous people and everybody's <laughs> yelling and screaming. And Keanu's over there trying to learn his lines from Hamlet, which is true. He then went and did it in Canada. Um, so Sandy provided a really interesting balance because she was the opposite. You know, mm-hmm. she's like outgoing and always full of energy. And, and so she's kind of like the cheerleader, you know, and she did a lot to establish what the atmosphere was on the bus which was a relaxed atmosphere and kidding and making fun of each other and so forth and so on, singing songs. We just did so many crazy things. Uh, I remember one time we were stuck, you know, on the freeway over there and it almost felt like the production had forgotten about us and left us out there. So we were getting out of the bus and we, we were, we, the guys, we started to do like arm wrestling and stuff, you know, <laughs> the thing where you stand uh, like sort of basically toe to toe with the feet together and you get arm and you know pull who off balance and whatever. And we were like and 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 Keanu, I I got to do it with Keanu and no (laughs) Keanu joined in the jollity, reluctantly at first, but then you know the realization comes like, hey guys, we're all out here and you know who knows when they're coming for us. So yeah. I I guess like going back to how you said it was acting with substance and an ensemble piece then with everyone on the bus. I guess that really came through in the film because all of the scenes, the group seems so together and there's so much chemistry there. But I guess having you on this bus, making you kind of speak to each other and do all these crazy things that really added to the film. 
because it came through to us as the audience. Yeah, yeah. No, that that was a fortunate outcome, you know. And and really, like I said, it's because early on the the chemistry started to happen. And again, I credit um, I credit Sandy a lot um, because you know she you know stars can be strange people and uh and whenever you get on a set you know and meet the star or whatever there's kind of this sort of at first you know this sort of hesitancy of like well how are they going to be how are they going to act what you know yeah. because you know if you're in the business long enough you every now and then work with some pretty obnoxious people <laughs> but uh, a star can have a lot of influence on, on what the general atmosphere and mood, which then contributes to the creativity that happens in the project. You know, if everybody's walking around like this, you, you are kind of scared, you know, to, to take a leap or to do a jump or to, or to, or to throw in a, a line that's not in the script. You know, if you're feeling like, oh, this is by the numbers, this is whatever. Um, I have a funny story about that. Um, well, it's not so funny, but it's illustrative. I did a film um, a few years ago um, called Parker, which was like action, adventure, whatever. Um, and this, it was actually a remake. It's, it's, it's a story that's been done like four or five times on film. Mel Gibson did it, called it something else. Um, the original one, which I think it's the best one was Lee Marvin. Um, so anyway, so we're doing Parker and and, and the star was Jason Statham. Yeah. You know, you know Jason, he's like five o'clock shadow, <laughs> kicking people, hurting people, whatever. And um, so I didn't have a lot in that film. I had like two scenes and they were both with Jason, you know. So I get there. And we're going to shoot that day, and I'm on the set, and you know, you were always trying to run over your lines and everything. And I see Jason across the way, and, and he's sitting in his in his chair, and and he seems to be like kind of studying as well. So I thought, hey, it's what you do. So I went over to him and I said, hi, you know, I'm Carlos, and I play the thing. And he said, you know, he looks at me like, yeah. You know, <laughs> His resting expression is like, I'm going to kill you. You don't want that state of death there, do you? You just don't want it. Yeah, that's, like, that's when he's in a good mood, you know. <laughs> so I go over there and I'm and, and like, you know, I was kind of wondering if you don't mind, you know, when you have uh, some spare time, if, if you'd mind like running the lines and stuff, you know? And he goes, oh, I'd love to. Absolutely. You know, yeah, let's do it. And and then at that point, then he would come up to me and go, Carlos, you want to run the, run the scene again? And, and I just thought, wow, that is so cool, you know? Yeah. And, and then when we actually were shooting, he was very generous, you know? Because again, that's the opposite. Oh, I'm going to do crazy shit and everything is all about me. You get a sense when you're working with somebody and, and they're, they're playing ball, they're playing tennis with you, you know? It's like, okay, I did my thing now, here. You know, yeah. you, you have a go, and so forth and so on. So working with him ended up being like an absolute joy, and, and again, I think the work was elevated. It was just better. Than yeah. That, yeah. You know? yeah. And 
uh, I'm a big believer in ensemble. Everything I do, because I also, I also produce, I also direct, and that is always to me like the north star. Like, okay, I want to, I want to give everybody their space. I want to, you know, no, no question is is a stupid question. You know, I like to listen. I, but you know what? Sometimes you get great ideas, you know, yeah. from whatever. And that's like, okay, I'm gonna steal that. Um, <laughs> And, and that when a project is over to me, that's the, the greatest reward, especially when people of their own initiative come to you and say, I really enjoyed this. It was so much fun. We were, you know, such a group. I, I'm, I'm a big, huge, huge believer. And you got to pull the team together. What was it like for you, um, say, the day Speed came out or the premiere and the first time you get to see it? And the reaction obviously starts to come through. And, you realize that not just you think you, you've made a great film, but everyone else does as well and everything that comes with it. How is that for you? Well, there's nothing like the first screening, you know, and um, I've been in enough films and been through enough cast and crew screenings and things like that to know that, first of all, your human reaction is like, am I going to look good? Oh, my God. How much of my stuff? stayed in, how much of my stuff was, you know, because I've been on that end of it too, where, you know, suddenly all your stuff is gone. Um, so that, you, on that, on that level, on the personal level, you're kind of like going, looking for your, you. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, your actors, like, oh, what do I look like? Am I good? <laughs> and then on the secondary level, you start to take in the whole film and like, and then you go like, well, is it good or not? Because when you go to the first screening, you're hoping, you really are hoping that it's good. Yeah. You know, like a good film. And um, when I saw Steam the first time, I, I was like, oh my God, oh wow, this, this is a blockbuster. Yeah. In fact, kind of everybody knew that it was going to be big about a month into shooting. Um, just because, you know, you're getting the dailies and stuff like that, and, and you're witness to what's being put, what's being captured, and, and, and everybody's like, oh, wow, this is, a, this is amazing. Yeah. So it was an interesting thing to, to watch happen because, like I said, uh, early on into the shooting, because the first thing that got shot was the bus, all of the bus stuff, and then the elevator and the subway, yeah. that got done later. Um, so the studio starts getting all of this bus footage and everything, and then all of a sudden, all these shoots start showing up on the set, you know, whatever, to look around or whatever, and it became clear that the studio had changed. But in the beginning, again, nobody was a big star. I mean, even Keanu, I mean, Keanu already had been established, and he had his following and everything, but it was mostly off the Bill and Ted movies, you know, which is right here, let's go surfing yeah. you. I think and Point Break was the same year. Yeah. And now he's an action hero, and everybody was like not sure how that was going to work. And like I said before, Sandra, God bless her, um, she hadn't been in anything like spectacular. No. So it basically, it started out as a low-budget movie. Yeah. You know, it was like, we were talking earlier about million-dollar yeah. budget. I think speed originally was under 30 million, um, you know, uh, as a budget. 
Also, that helps because you don't have to pay an enormous star salary. You know, because sometimes it's like the ten million dollars for Kevin Costner. Yeah. Um, so it was a little movie in the beginning, you know, and then it then it then then the the, the buzz started happening, and and even us, we were like, oh my god, this can be really big. So at the first screening, you're hoping, and then it was confirmed, <laughs> you know. Yeah. When you see something, you're in, and you go, "Oh my God, this is good. This is exciting," you know. So, so the reaction to the first screening, the first viewing, was just exhilarating and exciting. And by then, all of that stuff that happened before with the, the characters and the writing and so, you know, I actually was lucky in terms of that rewrite because at least I kept the same character. Some of the other people were completely like flipped over and then and, and, and converted into different characters and and so forth. And um, I'll tell you one of the ironies of that is that Keanu early in his career was very interested in, in theater and put specifically doing the classics in theater. I mentioned before that he was off studying his Hamlet between takes. And that was true. He he had booked to do a production in Canada, and so he was committed to that and kept the script in his back pocket. Now the ironic thing is that as part of pursuing classical development and career, he actually apprenticed. Uh, there's a theater company; it's still around called Shakespeare and Company, um, which I actually was fortunate to work with for one season. Uh, and they really, they're bricks, you know, yeah. they came over here and really the original intent was to create, um, again, ensemble, but a company of actors that stays together and, and has a, a common method of approaching the material and everything. Basically, what happens over in your country, you know, when you have sort of repertory companies and things like that, we don't have that here. Theater here is done like by project to project. Everything is a one-off. You know, you hire the actors, you cast them, whatever. You rehearse, you rehearse, you do the production, and then everybody's fired. Um, so that these folks came over here uh, to establish a company that was also a teaching company that kept the same people, um, and they also do apprenticeships. Piano, early young in his career, he ended up as an apprentice at Shakespeare and Company. And his primary teacher that he held on to was this amazing Asian actress who specialized in, in the, the link later method because one of the founders of this company was a woman also from your country. Well, she was Scottish. Um, Kristen Linklater, who has developed her own, well, Kristen is no longer with us. Um, her own approach to voice productions, especially as it applies to um, doing the classics, and Shakespeare trained uh, followers, or, or, or she mentored people in her method, and then they, they could get certified after a couple of years of working with her. So one of the certified Linklater teachers was this actress named Natsuko, who was like Keanu's teacher at a certain point, and then she ended up on the bus, <laughs> and, uh, and and she unfortunately was one of the ones who lost all of her material, you know, 
in the rerun. Mm -hmm. But if you watch speed and you, and you, and you look at, at the bus people, you'll spot Natsuko, the Asian lady, because she's sort of also sitting towards the front of the bus. I would just shake my head and go, wow. I mean, you know, this woman is such a massively gifted actress. All of that talent and it's just sat there being, being cut. <laughs> well, but, but again, she's such a good performer and she's so committed that, you know, she also, you know, we dive in every day, you know, head first. What can I do? What's my reality? What do I do? What do I do? And if, if you scrub through the film, you know, you'll see, because again, Jan, the director, was true to his word. He found places, you know, like, okay, I'll give them yeah. close up or I'll cut in on this moment and, and so forth. You know, and but but again, it's like, uh, like wow, she's so good. Yeah. <laughs> All the lines are gone. You know, and, and the piano connection, you know, and, yeah. and they, she was a teacher. And, um, whatever. But yes, the first screening, we knew it was a hit. Yeah. With the. Um, uh, I will yeah. say about speed, though. Um, you were talking about embraces of silliness or absurdness or whatever. In a way, speed was kind of a groundbreaking film um, because. It started in the second act. You know, there was no first act. Mm -hmm. And it's always like that. You know, because if you study traditional screenplay structure or even playwriting structure and everything, there are these sort of obligatory beats, you know, where you establish the situation and you establish the characters and, you know, what's the thing and, and you know, what's the, what they call the, inciting incident that sets everything in motion and then of course there's the exposition you know where you kind of explain to the audience this is what's going on and whatever an exposition is always tricky because you don't want to make it obvious you know that you're going okay here's what's happened you know speed didn't, didn't do all that no. in the writing you know it just starts and shit's happening yeah. and up stuff and, and then it never stops you know i think that's why we love it i think that's one of those well who are these people i mean what did it what happened you know and everything so so i remember at the time again in the reviews and so forth and so on that that observation was made this is the movie that starts in the second act you know and yet if you see and that was like revolutionary at the time and then if you look at examine uh, writing since then, screenwriting and stuff, that kind of like little formula, you know, you can see it reflected in other films. Yeah. You know, where they just start and all yeah. hell is breaking loose. You know, so that was kind of a revolutionary thing at the time. Sure. With, with um, where you said the, the script changed a lot, according to uh, IMDb, they say that in the first draft of the script, it was that, the bus couldn't go over 20 miles an hour, which obviously would then create a completely different film. You're no kidding. Uh, that would yeah. be speed two. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because in typical Hollywood fashion, what, the film turned out to be such a huge hit that the studio went, oh, we have to do a sequel. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then the word got out that they were doing a sequel. And um, first of all, they set it on a boat. You know, and it's like, how fast can a boat go? Because yeah. <laughs> they did call it speed too. You yeah, know, cruise control. 
Yeah, and it's this big lumbering boat, and it's like, okay, that doesn't sound good. Uh, and then another sort of bad indication was that most of the people, well, they didn't bring us back, which we were kind of like, really? Because, um, you know, usually in those big action movies, uh, you know, if it's a hit, you bring everybody back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you figure it out. You can write whatever you want. They could have given you the lines they cut out the first one. That's right, you know, <laughs> I, you know, a good buddy of mine named Reggie Bell Johnson, um, who later got his own TV series, but he was in the original Die Hard. Yeah. You know, and he was the cop, you know, the Bruce Willis, and he managed yeah. to contact a cop, and it was Reggie. And so Die Hard, and then Die Hard became this big, huge thing and everything. So when it came time to do Die Hard 2, guess who was in it? Yeah. Reggie. They brought the cop back. I mean, he didn't yeah. have a whole giant thing, but you know what? They put him in the movie. Just a lot, yeah. Kudos, Reggie. Thank you for helping the hit to be yeah. to make the first one a hit. And that tends to be kind of standard practice. So once yeah. Steve two rolled along, and, and it was like we were all waiting for the call. And it's, are you in it? Are you in it? No, no, no. And and it's on a boat. And it's like, and Keanu's not in it. Because no. he passed. Um, Sandra felt the loyalty and stuff because yeah. by then it had had an impact on her career. Yeah. So she signed on again for it, but yeah. No. Nah. And proving that money don't buy everything because yeah, Speed sure. Two had four times the budget than yeah. the original. Just, just, uh, just lastly, I mean. We saw that you've done some voice acting too, and uh, one of the things that that stood out on um, your page was that you did uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. It says that you did some of the uh, voices there, which, which is great. That, that must have been a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it was interesting because um, at the time I didn't. I think that was like maybe the second. Well, I'm not a gamer. Mm -hmm. So when the gig came through, it's like, okay, you're gonna do Grand Theft Auto, man. And I'm like, yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then I went and, and then I did it, and then I started to hear from people like, oh yeah, doing Grand Theft Auto. So what? But then I realized, you know, that it was a pretty huge franchise, and that, you know, okay, I got to do that. I'll tell you something about games, though, and doing voice work for games. Um, I haven't done one in a while, so maybe I'm speaking with old information. But one of the things, okay, in this to be in this industry, you have to belong to unions, mm -hmm. you know, different unions and whatever. And for the performers, it's always like, you know, okay, can we get a better deal here? Can we get a better deal here? And so forth. And I have to say, I've been in this long enough to form an opinion that the unions tend to be sort of behind the curve when it comes to new technology, yeah. you know, and certain things escape. I've always thought unions should have an R&D department, you know, so they can be up to date. And there have been historically issues like in new, in new technology or in new uh, platforms and things like that, that the union kind of came to the party late. Um, going all the way back, one of them was cable television. When they were starting to do the whole cable TV and everything, 
and it became necessary to have a new contract because well, what do you do with cable? Because before that, it was like, you know, television, broadcast yeah. television, and, and also now this cable thing comes along. And so it had to be negotiated, and, and the union kind of took this attitude like, well, it's a new thing. It's like, it's not going to really do whatever. Yeah. And so they negotiated a really crappy contract with cable, and then cable took off. And now yeah. everything's cable, and we're stuck with a bad contract. It, it has changed. Um, yeah. But the same thing happened with digital, when everything started to go digital. Because it's interesting, a lot of the unions traditionally were based on technology. Um, we had two unions, which have now merged uh, for on-camera work. One was the Screen Actors Guild, which everybody yeah. has heard about. The other one was AFRA, which is the American Federation uh -huh. of Radio Artists, because the SAG, SAG basically their jurisdiction was celluloid. And after their jurisdiction was tape, you know. So after was they had the contracts for like radio broadcasting, uh, soap operas, you know, anything television and so forth and so on. And SAG had celluloid and never the twenty shall meet. Well, what happens? You know, 20, 30 years ago, say so digital starts to come along. Digital, and pretty soon, as you guys of your generation know, everything is digital. So suddenly, people are shooting films on digital media. And so our recordings and, and everything is now digital. So why do we have two unions? Yeah. <laughs> one for tape and one for celluloid, when that doesn't exist anymore. So then that became another search, like, oh, wait, wait a minute. We need a contract. We need a contract for digital. Um, what do we do? And by then, again, the horse had left the barn. And then the two unions started fighting with each other because it's like, no, we have a contract. No, we have a contract. And then the, the contracts did not match because one was much better for the actors and the other one was sort of much better for the producers, which meant the actors made far less money. And so it just became this thing um, until finally about four years ago, the unions merged. And so now there's one contract. Getting back to games though, yeah. Games was another one that escaped, you know, went under the radar. So the contract for working on games is really kind of crap, you know. Usually, like if you work on a film, you work on a television series, you, you record an album, whatever, there are those things that are called residuals, you know, so that every time it's played, every time it's yeah. used, whatever. Um, there's another check in the mail, you know, not necessarily a huge check because it, it decreases over time, mm -hmm. but it does reach a certain point where you are going to be paid for usage for like 50 years or something like that. Games, they let the residuals go. Yeah. No residuals. So when you work on a game, you get what's called the session fee. You know, whatever that may be. It's like, okay, we're going to pay you $1,000 to come in and, and record on Grand Theft Auto. Here's your $1,000. Yeah. Goodbye. Hmm. You know, and so what happens? The gaming industry has completely blown up. It's yeah. Yeah. There are all these gamers out there and they can't wait to buy the next copy into this, that, you know, 
So the gaming producers are making money hand over fist. The actors, well, they got their thousand dollars go away, leave them alone. And part of what's kind of hard to take about that is that recording for a game is really, really challenging. It's really taxing because A, you're doing multiple uh, versions. Because you know, when you're, I guess, uh, again, I say I'm not a gamer, but it's all about the alternate choices, you know? Yeah. Oh, you've reached the end of the tunnel. Now, do you go that <laughs> way where the dragon is, or do you go that way where the princess is, and whatever, and you, the gamer, make a choice. So, depending on what you choose, the voicing has to follow you. Okay. So, if it's the dragon, then that's a whole other script. If it's the princess, it's a whole other thing. And you have to record both. And because it's games, and most of the games tend to be kind of action-packed and kind of violent and a lot of shooting in games, you have to record all of them. And you have to record it over and over and over because you have to record the reactions to these, oh, you know, or, over there, over there, you know, get them, get them, oh, pass me the gun. And you have to do that over and over and over. A lot of screaming and yelling involved. Yeah. So it's not unusual for somebody to walk away from a game session kind of like in distress yeah. <laughs> it's like asking a sprinter to go into a full sprint from a standing start almost that you've got to like just turn it on and then turn it straight off again yeah you know and, and over and over and over again and then all of that for no residuals going back to grand theft auto the main guy you know, finally realized, and I believe he sued the company because it came out that he was paid $100,000, which is, you know, that's considerable money, but he was paid $100,000 for the whole thing, you know, one-time payment. Now, you look it up and tell yeah. me how millions and millions and millions <laughs> yeah. Grand Theft Auto has generated in revenue. And these poor guys walking around with $100,000 in his pocket, which again, that sounds big, but not if the thing has no, no. $40 million globally. And who got that? Yeah. 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 So that's my story about games. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for giving us so much of your time today. We really thank appreciate it. Yeah, it was brilliant. Thank you. It was. Thank you. Oh, but, but I will say one other thing. One last yeah. thing about because I have recently been involved in a recording project, but it was not a game. Um, again, I've mentioned, I think, that I'm a classical actor, um, mm -hmm. which is why it's ironic. It's like, you know, nice little mug lady. Um, I recently, and I was in New York for many years doing theater and a theater actor and stuff. Um, last fall, um, around September or something, I got, a, I, I got reached out to, I was mentioning before that, knock on wood, I get things offered to me now. And I got a, an email from New York, <clears throat> from the New York Shakespeare Festival, also known as the Public Theater, which um, is like one of the most prestigious theater companies in New York, in, in theater, uh, you know, all, all across the boards. Uh, just to give you an idea, some tremendous projects have originated um, that have become icons in the theater world at the New York Shakespeare Festival. Um, 
like chorus line came out of their hair <laughs> came out of the, uh, the, the public theater uh, on and on and on so they call me because they traditionally have always done something called free shakespeare in the park which if you're ever in new york in the summer you look for it because it's a wonderful outdoor theater in central park and it's free you know they, they do two to three productions every summer and wonderful people have worked there, Meryl Streep, uh, on and on and on. So this summer, because of the pandemic, it's like, oh, we can't do free Shakespeare in the theater. So what they, they decided to do was create digital productions of the plays, mm -hmm. uh, sound recordings. It's not just yeah. people reading a script. It's like the whole thing. It's a performance. It's rehearsed. There are stunts. There's everything. Uh, sound soundscapes, uh, music, soundtrack. So they, they reached out to me and said, would you be interested in, in playing a role in our production of Romeo and Juliet? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> why, why would I say no? Um, so I, they cast me. I mean, I play, it's not a huge role, but Lord Capulet, you know, the Romeo's father, no, Julius, or whatever, one of the dads. Yeah. I'm at that age now. Um, so it was a wonderful thing. We did it like this on Zoom, but a little more complicated because what they did, they didn't want to use this audience. So what they did is that they sent everybody like a care package, you know, I got a big box and in it um, was like a mini home recording studio, you know, a microphone, microphone stand, pop filter, the whole thing. And the heart of it was, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with another thing called Zoom, but it's a recorder. It's um, a small recorder. Um, you can look it up. It's a brand. Um, yeah. I, I have a little one right here. Um, this is a Zoom. Um, yeah. But this, this is the budget version. You know, yeah. Microphones here, and um, you know, and it's a digital recorder. Great quality. The um, the high-end version is much bigger and it's got meters on it and all kinds of stuff and XLR inputs, whatever. So they sent everybody that to set up at home. And it's almost like if I'm talking to you here and this is being recorded off the Zoom, but I have my own yeah. Zoom recorder here with yeah. my microphone and stuff like that. So I can be recording both things simultaneously. But over here, I'm recording in high quality. Mm -hmm. So the way the project yeah. was done was that everybody got that and then an engineer would get on with you and walk you through the whole thing so you set up properly. And then we would rehearse like this on Zoom. <clears throat> but when it came down to record, everybody would turn on their Zoom and we would do a, you know, slate yeah. and go from there. So you're still like looking at each other and you see, you see body language, you can see whatever and you're playing the scenes out like this on Zoom, but you're recording it on the other Zoom. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end of each session, you would take those digital files and download them and send them um, to the production. Now, why do I say all this? Because they just finished and it's about to debut on the 18th um, over a public radio station in New York, but it's going to be available on their YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. So this March the 18th, um, I can send you the link actually. Yeah, sure. Yes, please. Yes, please. 
Yeah, the, 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 it's the big splash, Romeo and Juliet, and it's a bilingual production. Uh, it's mostly in English, but with like Spanish phrases, bits of a, a great Spanish translation thrown in, uh, and it's bilingual. Um, and it stars Lupita Nyong'o as Juliet. Um, you guys see, what is it, 12 Years a Slave or whatever the hell it was? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so Lupita is a big rising star and uh, did not know this, but she's bilingual. She speaks Spanish fluently. Oh, it turns out, out that she spent her childhood in Mexico. So she's playing Juliet. And um, the thing, uh, like I said, I'll send you the link. Yep. Launches on the 18th this month. And um, that's the kind of recording I've been doing lately. Amazing. Well, we can't yeah. wait to watch it. Yeah, that's great. Listen to it. Not watching, yeah. listen. Yeah. yeah. What you can do on, on, the, on the 18th, yeah. you can do chat. You know, you can ask questions while it's in progress and stuff like that. In fact, just yesterday, I got an email from the director asking me if I would mind being one of the commentators yeah. on the chat and stuff. So um, undoubtedly, somebody will get on there and go, hey, Popeye, what do you So that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, guys. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. When is this going to happen? Do you have any idea? Actually, can you send me a link whenever this takes Yeah, yeah, place? I will do, yeah. Probably uh, in the middle of next week, I imagine. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll catch you on the team. See you Thank next you. time. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.